Welcome back, bookcasers. Your assignment this week, every Thursday and every week thereafter, to sign on and go into the bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am Kate Gibson. We are the Fun Assignment Club. I'll look at us that way. Sure. Why not? All of you are getting good grades. (laughs) This week we have, and I've got to go belly up and make an admission. This week we have a dear, dear friend of mine and of Kate's. Diana Walsh is the past president of Wellesley College, all women's college, just uh, outside Boston, uh, probably as fine a women's college as exists in this country. Diana has been a friend for more than 30 years. She's one of the most thoughtful and lovely people that I know. And I have known her since long before she became president of Wellesley. And she came over one day and she said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm being interviewed for the presidency of Wellesley. She was teaching at Harvard at the time. And she said, how likely is this? I'm shy. I'm uncomfortable in situations where I have to be in front of large groups of people, etc." But they're still talking to me. And we said to her, you're going to get it. You're going to be the next president yeah. of Wellesley. And sure enough, yeah. it came to fruition. She was president for 14 years. And I say this as objectively as I can. Everything I've ever heard, she was a rock star (laughs) as president (laughs) at that college. She's a rock star everything. I mean, for somebody who comes across as as she describes herself as an absent-minded professor, (laughs) she is laser-focused when she wants to be. She is one of those rare leaders that is particularly adept at taking what is in her heart and speaking it with eloquence and passion. She, I mean, my gosh, when I hear her speak, I always think to myself, well, sign me up. <laughs> I mean, if she was throwing a huge rally to save the bedbugs <laughs> of the East Coast, I would go to that rally and I'd be like, bedbugs forever. Um, uh, Diana can get me to sign on to just about anything, anywhere. We should mention the name of her book, The Claims of Life. It's a memoir, yeah. but it is also a study in how to be a leader when you don't think of yourself as a leader. And she never thought of herself as smart, which is one of the strangest things. I don't understand why she didn't get the message because everybody else thought she was. And then it was part of her amazement, I guess, that Wellesley was interested in her for its presidency. The other thing I should mention is Chris, her husband of more than 50 years. And Chris was one of the smartest people I've ever met. He was a biochemist, and I say was because he died early this year, a sudden death. And it has thrown Diana as it would throw anybody for a complete loop. They were such a good couple. There are people that you think of as couples. In the public sphere, for instance, I always thought of Ron and Nancy Reagan as a couple. Yeah, they're the ins, aren't they? It's like you can't say one name without yeah, the exactly. other. You know, uh, Chris and Diane, uh, uh, Ron and yeah. Nancy. Uh, they really were each other's greatest advocates. And yet gave each other great space. At a memorial service that we attended, there were Nobel Prize winners praising Chris. One of them called Chris the most important biochemist of the 20th century. He, as Chris would say with some pride, I have 500,000 words in print. I didn't understand one of them. I didn't understand his Mm -hmm. chapter titles because he was Mm -hmm. writing about Mm -hmm. biochemical issues. As he would always say, you should think chemically and live biologically, which I thought was an interesting phrase. But he was a wonderful, the two of them were wonderful compliments to one another. And he had to talk Diana into marrying him when they were very young. 
And he said, we will, we will conquer, we will conquer the, world. the world as a pair. It is us. We will overcome the obstacles. And they did. So as I say, it's a lovely book about leadership. It's a lovely book about a life. It's a lovely book. And Chris is sort of a subtext in all of it because he was there supporting her in ways that should be an example for all husbands with successful wives or all wives with successful husbands. It's a lovely, lovely relationship between the two of them. As you can sense, I'm a big fan of Diana Walsh's. The book is <laughs> The Claims of Life. Now that's the name of it, The Claims of Life, published by the MIT Press. And here's our conversation with Diana. Diana Walsh, a longtime friend, and now a brand new author of a memoir, The Claims of Life. It's good to have you in the bookcase. But Diana, let me start. I'm curious as to why you wrote this book and for whom, because it is a memoir of sorts, but it seems to be something of a manual on leadership. You do spend the majority of the book on lessons you learned from and the approach to being president of Wellesley. So why did you write the book and for whom? It's a great question because it evolved through time. A lot of time in this book was a long time coming. And it started out very much as what you're describing, manual for leaders, based on what I learned. I was a rookie when I took on this big job. And I once said to my daughter, she says, why are you doing this? Mom, you're a scholar. What a waste of your mind. And I said, I'm, this is my mind. I'm going to make it my intellectual work. This is going to be my scholarship. I'm going to figure out how to make myself into a leader that I'm, that I'm proud of, who can be trusted. Something was driving me on. Partly, it was that I had known since the time I was 12 years old that before I died, I wanted to write a book that I considered a beautiful book, a book that was personal to me, that was my book. And my entire career, I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. They sent me a speechwriter the first day I arrived at Wellesley, and I said, oops, I'm sorry, you need a new job because I'll write my own speeches. I always wrote you know, policy papers, even some policy books, things like that, but not the book from my heart. In some ways, I look at the first interview you had for Wellesley and the second interview you had yes, for Wellesley yes. as a perfect metaphor for you two personalities. You sort of showed up for the first one and you were a little bit Uncle Fluffy. You know, I love the place and I love the kids and I love my kids and I love my family. And then the second interview, you show up and you've got this laser, laser focus of strength and power. And I just, again, I'm sort of fascinated. You describe Chris as a bundle of contradictions. And sometimes I wonder if you're not a bundle yourself. So I went home after that first interview, and I thought, oh, my God, I, you know, I, I, it, that was not a success. And I, and I just typed it all up. You know, what had happened and why? Thinking they'd never call me back. And then they called me back. And then I thought, okay, I can do this much better. Now I'm going to be the laser-focused one. So then I was, and I really thought about it. And, you know, people sort of say, ah, don't worry, just go into this. You know, just be yourself. It'll be fine. I, I, don't, I can't do that. I have to think things through ahead of time. I think that different people are different. I think, Kate, you're, you have tremendous access to everything inside your mind pretty much when you open your mouth. I don't. I, I have to go back and kind of think it through and sort it out. And so the second time, I was really prepared. And then the interview was just remarkable. The heavens opened and, the, and we were in a space that was so filled with possibility and excitement and mutual trust and admiration. People talk about a field, a generative social field. Sociologists talk about that. 
field in which people are all together and there's something happening in the field and you're feeling something collective. Mm-hmm. And the collective something, you're feeling it so strongly that you just know it's real and that you can trust it. Through your youth, though, you write that you were burdened by a sense of intellectual inadequacy. Yeah. You say, I arrived at college at Wellesley and you graduated with the belief that I wasn't smart enough. And then you say that I didn't see myself as smart. I don't don't understand why people saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. And then you're called up and interviewed for the presidency of Wellesley. Wasn't the message beginning to get through? (laughs) Maybe I'm slow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, smart. I mean, this word smart, we could spend the whole time talking about this word smart because there are different kinds of smart. Of course, we know that now multiple intelligences, Howard Gardner, he published a memoir with MIT also, interestingly. So smart shows up in the, across a whole wonderful palette of different kinds of abilities and talents. I had a sister two years behind me who was smart the way my husband was smart, brilliant and with a photographic memory and very good at science and math. But not only that, you know, this huge encyclopedic mind filled with facts and ideas and insights and creativity at instant <laughs> access to them. And that was true of both of them. So, and I wasn't like that. I'm not like that. It was a long process of discovering, first of all, how to manage myself in a world in which that kind of smart is the one that's most valorized. That's what we count as smart in the academy, in intellectual circles and academic circles, A. And B, it's not the only kind of smart we need in the world, right? We so need people who can slow down and connect with each other and listen from not just the head, but the heart. All of these things, they're cliches, but it's true. You were advised during the search, interesting piece of advice, you really have to believe in the mission of single-sex education. Right. Do you? Do you? And why in this day and age? Well, yeah, that's a fraught question. I do. I do. Not for everybody. I do as an option. I think the thing that has been so powerful and beautiful about the higher education system in our country, in America, is the range and diversity of possibilities for people. It's unlike anywhere else in the world, right? And these very different kinds of institutions are there for people. So it's a place where women come who Enjoy the chance to be totally in charge, to try that out for a while without having all of the pressures of social interactions with men and competition with men and and distractions from the possibility that you can be developing your own self to your very fullest capacity and then go out in the world. Wellesley once ran a campaign. It was called the Wellesley Effect because there is this phenomenon that you've got a group of people and there's one over there who holds herself in a certain way. There's a certain confidence, but also, you know, a kindness and a compassion that seems different. And so this is a special place. We need to preserve it. And I think that's true. I want to come back, though, to, again, the bundle of contradictions that is Diana. Yeah. Somebody describes you in the book, says, in your own quiet and unassuming manner, you are a bundle of dynamite. <laughs> you describe yourself as an introvert. You describe yourself as somebody who grew up with social anxiety. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is, do you know you're about to bring out that bundle of dynamite or that elephant gun, as you refer to it in the book? Do you know it's coming? And how can other introverts 
and other folks with social anxiety tap into their bundle of dynamite to their elephant gun. And be a college president. Yes. Where you have to kick some A. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. That's such a great question. The seven college presidents met once or twice a year always. And I once said at one of those meetings, I'm an introvert in an extrovert's job. And one of them said, oh, my God, I am too. And two others didn't say it, but I saw them thinking it. I think, you know, many of us are introverts who end up in extroverts jobs. So we have to figure out what that means and how we can develop that. You do it through self-awareness. You do it by paying attention. And you do it by, you know, there are all these cliches, right? But being your own good mother, being your own (laughs) best friend, because the introversion and the social anxiety is a harsh voice, a harsh voice in your head that says, be careful, you know, you're going to blow it again and it's going to be awful. It's a process of learning to listen to the voices in your head, learning to listen to the ones that are giving you trouble with a kind of amusement and say, okay, I hear you. I hear you in there enough already. I've been tormenting myself long enough. It's time to stop now. Just give it up. Give it up. Lighten up. So it's an interior dialogue over a long time. I think it's also in the context of understanding that there are so many different ways to be a person, an admirable person in this world who can create spaces for other people to bring themselves fully into situations that intimidate them. I was always willing to bring my vulnerabilities, but I always brought them carefully. Early on in your presidency, you get a problem laid in your lap of the kind that college presidents can have. An African-American faculty member is about to publish a book that the Jewish constituency at Wellesley finds blatantly anti-Semitic. The Jewish Onslaught, as I recall, was the name of the book. In a letter to alums, you said, we are profoundly disturbed and saddened by Professor Martin's book. But the black students called you in and said, who is this we? How dare you speak for us? And then the Jewish constituency on campus was calling for a forceful condemnation. So... How do you resolve that? What did you do? Well, Charlie, that was such, it was so hard and I was so new. And it's right now, as you ask that question, it it breaks my heart because that's exactly what's going on all over the country right now. And every academic institution, these presidents are writing these, I think, really, really important and powerful letters saying we have to not go after each other. We have to find a way to stay in dialogue. This is a terrible thing that Hamas has done. unbelievable and yet we have to be able to look at each other and sort through how history has brought us to this point and what we can learn and where we are and what's the right thing to do and how we protect all those kinds of things. It's one of the reasons that academic institutions are so important in our democratic society, I think, because those are the places where when something like what just happened in the Middle East happens, the presidents know that their role is to stand up and say the things that have to be said, and they do that very well. And it's harder and harder for people in other institutions to do that. So it was hard. What did I do? First of all, I I got help. I always got help. I talked to Neil Rudenstein. How would you handle this? I talked to a number of other people. I talked to Skip Gates. He came and sat with me in the president's residence. And as you say, said to you, you don't want to turn a second-class bigot into a first-class free speech martyr. Exactly. So, so... So, so you got all this help and you and I worked my way through it. I alienated a lot of the young black students who 
you know, he didn't have a huge following, but he had a following. And then when the president came down on him <laughs> with this letter, this forceful letter that I wrote, very, very forceful, I wrote it, edited it, edited it. I went down and met with Janetta Cole at Spelman. She was on the Wells Fargo. I, I took a lot of input from Jewish scholars and Jewish experts. So I wrote that we would condemn the book and for very specific reasons we would not go after his tenure, that we would censure him, that is, we would criticize him, and but more than that, we would criticize his act. We would specifically say what it was that he did that we are now publicly criticizing. We would censure it, but we would not censor him. We would not interfere with his right to speak and to have written this book. We would hold that tension always, that that would be the principle that we would bring to all situations like this, and then we would open up every possibility on the campus for people to learn from it. So we got faculty involved, and there was an art historian who partnered with a sociologist, and they made a new course and taught it on persuasion and propaganda. There were a number of other members of the faculty who did various things. The history department, on its own recognizance, met and decided that they would vote not to accept his courses for credit for a history major because they felt that what he had done and the way he had done it was not acceptable practice for a professional historian and he didn't want the students studying history to think that it was. So there were a number of things that were done by groups and individuals on the campus that all of which were under this large rubric that we were speaking out against what had happened and teasing out what it was about it that was unacceptable. And what was unacceptable was labeling people and using hateful labels and all of that. But we would never deny him his right to teach in the classroom. But we would always make sure that if we saw something going on, we would call it out. And so we got through it. I, when I went around the country for the next five years after I sent the letter out, there was always someone that was usually a, a husband of a Wellesley alum who pull me inside and say, you have a big endowment, get a big lawyer, get a big law firm and take him out. Get rid of this man. You can't have him on the campus teaching hate. This is a terrible thing you're doing. And, you know, we worried about that. There's a story in the book about a dean you hired. Yes. Who didn't connect with the faculty. Um, and you struggled with four years until a vote of no confidence from the faculty was looming, which is, of course, a sort of a <laughs> nuclear option. Yeah. But it raises the question, Diana, who really runs a college? Mm. The faculty or the administration? <laughs> or the students? Well, it's, I mean, it's a balance. I mean, you know, we know a faculty can bring a president down and happen at Harvard. It's happened in many places, right? We've got the faculty who own the curriculum and who are the permanent people, as I wrote, yeah. And you've got the students who are full of emotion and passionate intensity and can rally, and especially with social media, can rally the whole world. And the administration is important. The trustees are in charge. So the board of trustees is the governing body. So all of these balances have to be maintained and sustained. And there has to be this fundamental foundation of trust. It doesn't have to be every minute and people don't have to like every single thing that the administration is doing. But there has to be some belief that we have this set of values and commitments that we're pursuing. And they include fairness and they include equity and they include 
owning up to our deficiencies and our mistakes and agreeing that we'll do what we can to repair our ruptures and all of these things. They include a whole kind of philosophy of how to govern a group of people with a shared purpose who want to go together in a collaboration with compassion for everybody, with space for everyone to come in and to benefit from what's being offered. That not that the definition of a democracy, really? Isn't it? They're little democracies that struggle and we do our best and we try to do it better the next time and the time after that and we don't always succeed. As a sociologist, you said, I, I studied power, but I had to admit that I was always ambivalent about wielding it. Do you look back on your presidency as Wellesley with a sense that you resolved that potential ambivalency? Yeah, I did. I did. I knew. I knew that the buck stopped with me. Someone gave me a card that was a picture of a chicken and it said, the clock stops here. <laughs> the clock didn't stop there, but the buck did. I knew I was in charge and I, I was very comfortable with that. I knew I had to make the hardest decisions. They were for me. I knew I had fabulous teams and colleagues and I consulted them carefully and heavily, but somebody had to step up and say, all right, I'm taking, I'll take the hit. I'll take the responsibility. You write throughout about how important your life and your marriage has been. And I love the quote from Chris when he said, somebody who has gotten as many standing ovations as you have from students can't be the same person that they were before that. But Chris was so mightily important in all that and such obviously a great booster, as I know from reading the book and from knowing Chris personally. And you say at the end of the book, you write about the fact that Chris died suddenly in the early part of 2023. But my question is, I hate to bring men into this, but could you have done it without him? I can't answer that. It's not an answerable question because our lives were so intertwined and it was never a dependency relationship on either side. It wasn't that we advised each other. We didn't advise each other. The process of writing the book, of interviewing him about it, of thinking about ourselves as a unit, in the world of these people who lived the most remarkable lives who were so, so lucky first to find each other and then to find all these opportunities. We were both so profoundly enriched by this amazing, <laughs> loving relationship that we had from, you know, we were 21. It is such an interesting sub-theme for somebody who was involved in single-sex education as intimately as you were, that a really solid, loving marriage could be such a supportive part that makes you successful in a single-sex world. Mm. And I love the fact you write in the book that Chris said jointly, Diana, we will create possibilities neither of us alone could ever imagine. We will free ourselves of constraints that are holding us back. We will escape just we two together. Yeah. And you did. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It is. And running a single-sex college is an interesting thing in this day and age. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thanks. The book is The Claims of Life. The author, Diana Walsh, former president of Wellesley College, and a good friend to everybody named Gibson. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Diana Chapman. What's the most influential writer in your life? So, of course, I thought about it because, you know, I prepared. Of course. <laughs> and I have about 30, but then I narrowed Jonathan Kozol. Really? Why? He wrote with such passion and such energy and such force about the injustices in our world that I read every one of his books. I once heard him speak. I, I mean, that's what writing powerful, powerful. It's, obviously nonfiction writing can be and can do. I have two yes or no questions to you and then a follow-up, but you'll know where I'm going. (laughs) Should a Catholic college be willing to accept Protestants? Yes or no? Yes. Should a traditionally black college be willing to admit white people? Yes. (laughs) So should a woman's college be willing to admit men? Well, there will come a time in our society, maybe when that's, when gender is not as profound a divider between people. I don't know what that will look like. I, you know, we had, <laughs> Charlie, no, I, we're not going to. Isn't he cute? Isn't he cute? Isn't he so fun? Isn't he fun? <laughs> should. I mean, what do you mean by should? Of course, private colleges and universities should be allowed Oh, no, now I'm going to get myself hoist on a petard. I can't do that. (laughs) Boy, let me tell you, his daughter had an answer to that question. Oh, good. Let's hear. Uh, When the male gaze is no longer so restrictive and women feel no longer so beholden to it, then should we, at that point, maybe not need them anymore? That's so good. That's so good. You should be the next president of Wellesley because they're going to need you. Oh, my God. (laughs) Actually, that leads me into my next rapid fire question, which is, if you're talking to somebody who's considering to be a college head and they say it is thankless, the lunatics are running the asylum and it feels like all you do is put out fires for scandals. What do you tell somebody? Why is it great to be the head of a college? What are the good parts? In a rapid fire answer. In a rapid yeah, fire no, problem. Answer. You just, no problem. You, you, you learn, you grow, you're part of something that is fundamentally important in our society for the future. 
that gives you a chance to be thinking a lot about the future. And I never for a minute regretted I'd done it. it. It'll change you. It'll change you. But it'll change you in wonderful ways. What is your guilty pleasure read? My guilty pleasure read. You know, I read a lot of stuff that people might consider woo. I'm very interested in consciousness. I'm very interested in contemplative practice. I'm very interested in meditation. I do, I read a lot of that stuff. And Buddhism, and I, I'm not a Buddhist. That, that's all my guilty reading. I do a lot of it. And, I, and it brings me pleasure if I'm kind of lost and confused, I go back to it. I love this. Your dirty secret is writings about inner peace. Come on, come on. <laughs> and finally, Diana, if you've listened to the podcast, you know we ask it in five words. What would you like the rest of your life to be? Better than this year was. Uh, Those were my five. Losing my husband. Yeah. There's nothing worse. But then I, yeah. So then I tried to get more cheerful, and I said, "Learning, laughing, surrounded by friends." There's five. Our conversation with Dr. Diana Walsh, I loved talking to her. I think it harkens to me in some ways back to the conversation we had with David Gergen at the very beginning of our podcast, because it's not just a book about how to be a leader. It's a book about how to be a leader with a very strong moral compass. I think we have a lot of leaders out there who are out there to lead, not necessarily put the moral compass first. And this book, I think, is a beautiful reminder of how to do that and why it's so important. Diana comes from a Quaker background, mm. Quakers who believe in a sense of the meeting, who, who believe in bringing consensus among a group. And it's, it's, it's tough sometimes to get a consensus among faculty members who you would have trouble getting them to agree that it's Thursday because <laughs> they're a pluralist sure. lot. But she did that in a wonderful way at Wellesley. It was really wonderful to go back to our conversations before she was offered the job and then to realize how she was able to pull it off at that college, uh, which I think was uh, so much the better for her leadership. One thing I want to add that was just fun because we had great fun always with Chris and Diana when we were together. They met Kate's daughter, Charlie, who, when I think she was first exposed to them, was four years old. And she was told that Chris was a great scientist and that Diana was a renowned educator. That's hard for a four-year-old to process. So what did Charlie do? She started calling them Boy Dr. Walsh and Girl Dr. Walsh. <laughs> and, and they both got such a kick out of it. And so in our family, Diana is still Girl Dr. Walsh. I think it should have been on the cover of the book, uh, <laughs> The Claim of Life. By GDW. By, <laughs> by, by, uh, by Girl Dr. Walsh. Yes, I I'm like that. I'm not sure that would have helped sales, but at least uh, it was a nice thought. No, and I'm sure she probably would have gotten some letters about the heck, <laughs> but it is what we call them in our house. And um, You're right. we miss Chris dearly. Oh, miss him so much. So uh, we have a bookstore this week. It is up in Montpelier, Vermont, the capital of Vermont. But a lovely little city, Claire Benedict, is uh, one of the owners of Bear Pond Books on Main Street in Montpelier. And we had the pleasure of talking with her. Claire, from Bear Pond Books, it is so great to have you in the bookcase. I 
first of all, I think your store looks amazing. But before we get into why you own a bookstore, being in Vermont, I'm sure you expected to have happened to you what you just had happened to you. So tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a big flood in July. Our whole town of our capital city of Montpelier, Vermont, was fully underwater, the whole downtown. And it has been quite a trial. We had to rebuild the bookstore. The whole downtown has to rebuild. And we have been going at it since July 11th, and we just reopened a few days ago, and very excited, exhausted, and excited to be reopened, and feeling much more comfortable in this condition than we were before. How high did it get? First shelf? Second shelf? Third shelf? How, how high did it get, and how many books did it ruin? Well, we were warned that a flood might be coming, so we brought things up off the bottom two shelves. But it turned out the water came in like three and a half to four feet. And that was much higher than anyone was expecting. So Oof. we did save some inventory, but but not all of it. How did you come up with a game plan? What was step one for you when you walked in and you went, oh, my God? It was pretty overwhelming. The whole thing has been really like emotionally and mentally overwhelming. But you know, the, there was still a lot of water in, on the floors and there were puddles and it was very muddy. So there was just books floating in muddy puddles and it was pretty discouraging. Uh, by the time we got in, it took us a while to get in because we had to wait for the water to recede before we could even get near the downtown. So it took like a full day before we were able to get in and see the damage. You know, it was just, it was worse than we expected. And kind of fortunately, we didn't realize how much damage was done right away because we ended up having to tear out our floors and our walls up to four feet and throw mm. out every single bookcase in the store. And we didn't really realize that the first day or two. I think it took, took us a few days to realize how bad the damage was, which was probably a good thing because it was kind of a slow decline there. And that led us have some hope to save things, but that didn't happen. But the fact that your bookstore is 50 years old yeah. is a tribute, A, to longevity and B, to community support. And I'm curious as to how the community responded when you were flooded out. It's been absolutely incredible. Like, I can't even believe it. Like you said, we've been here for 50 years, so we're a very strong member of our community, and we always knew that, and we've always had a lot of community support. Our people, they don't buy online, they buy from us, they always support us in you know, whatever new event or you know promotion we have, our people are always here for us, so we knew we had a really good community. But this catastrophe really drove it home, because we have been hearing from people I mean, on the very first day that we were able to get into the store, there were people there at seven o'clock in the morning trying to help us clean out. What was the reopening day like? When we opened our doors, there was a crowd on the sidewalk and they came through the door yes! clapping and cheering. And it was like the most heartwarming, gratifying thing after all the work we've been through. And our staff has worked really hard to make this happen. And they were really there for us. And People just flooded in all day. I hugged a billion people. People were crying. It was really incredible. And they and they were buying. They were <laughs> they bought a lot of books. They cleaned us out of books. And that does not happen very often on your average Friday in August. So it was really, it was really wonderful. And it really meant so much to us because we were all really burned out. And so it was nice to have like a hard working day, but in a happy way. I don't mean to correct you, but it is a strange 
turn of phrase that you say people flooded in. It was a good flood this time. The last question I want to ask you is I want to give you a chance to pitch some local authors and local titles by local authors, because I think those are always the bread and butter of a great independent bookstore. And then also, what's your staff rec right now? My staff rec right now is Northwoods by Daniel Mason, which is- I have it. I have it. Gotta read it. So good. It's the- I think my favorite book of the year, and it's about a house in Western, I think like the Berkshires of Massachusetts, and it's the history of this house, the people who come and go through this house from the 1700s through the current day. I kind of think of it as a secret life of trees for houses, because there's this, yes, this interconnectedness of people who without even knowing that they're connected over time, and it's just so well done and such a good story my big wreck for the fall. Oh, cool. And the local wreck that, that you sold a lot of on your reopening day, who are some of your favorite local authors? Okay, Save Me a Seat, A Life with Movies by Rick Winston. Rick Winston opened the Savoy Theater in town, which is our art house theater that's been here since the 80s. It's a very kind of like old school art house theater that we love. It's a really beloved institution in this town. Great title. Great title. Claire, thank you ever so much. Bear Pond Books, it's on 77 Main Street in Montpelier, Vermont, a small town, but a big bookstore. And coming back after a disastrous flood with the help of a very understanding community. Thanks so much. Thank you. Freshly reopened, congratulations to you. Claire Benedict at Bear Pond Books in Montpelier, Vermont. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you listeners for taking the time to listen to us and listen to us talk to a good friend about her amazing new book, The Claim of Life. A reminder about the folks who make this podcast possible. And then afterwards, a coda from Girl Dr. Dr. Walsh. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. Life is long. It provides so many opportunities and surprises. Take a chance, take a risk. You'll probably discover that the thing you thought you couldn't do is something you're very good at. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.